Our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight on this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper, for as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, every time you attend the Lord's Supper, you preach. You proclaim Christ. You proclaim his death. And it, not just that he died. It's not the local evening news which routinely announces the death of notable citizens. It's not like the obituary page of the local newspaper. You're not proclaiming the fact of his death. No. In the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the significance, the meaning of the death of Christ. You are proclaiming when you receive the Lord's Supper that God incarnate, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was sent by the Father to redeem his people. He came to this planet, lived a perfect life, a life of righteousness, a life you and I could not live even for one day on our best day. And that the Son of God took upon himself our sin and died in our place on the cross, receiving in his person the just punishment for our sin, the wrath of God, which we justly deserve. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you preach it. But do you believe it? Then that's not an insignificant question. Because all across the world, millions of people eat this bread and drink the cup every week, and many of them don't believe it. They don't believe the significance of the death of Christ. They, they go through religious motions. They believe that if they do X, Y, or Z, that if they say the right prayers, if they do the right religious works, that somehow that makes them all right with God. That having followed the liturgy, God is somehow now obligated to save them. But if they don't believe, if they don't trust that Jesus died in their place, if they don't believe that Jesus died for them, if they don't believe that they deserve the wrath of God for their unbelief, for their sin, and that Jesus took the wrath of God that they genuinely deserved on himself so that they would never have to, if they don't believe that, then they are still in their sins, the Bible says. And there are many who take the Lord's Supper and do many other religious works and yet don't believe. That's not my assessment, that's the assessment of Jesus, who says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And he could have added, and in your name 
receive the Lord's Supper. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So that's what the Lord's Supper means. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you proclaim, you preach. You preach the Lord's death, but not everyone who takes the Lord's Supper believes. And it's not that I preach the Lord's death and you don't believe. It's that you preach the Lord's death and don't believe. You're the preacher. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You're the preacher. And so the question this morning is, do you believe your own preaching? Isaiah raises that question in the passage that we have been exploring on Communion Sundays recently. We've been looking at Isaiah 53, which by now you're aware actually begins in Isaiah 52. A part of the Servant of the Lord hymns in Isaiah is this text. It's the best known of those servant hymns. And it's the one quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament text. It's the one that led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Jesus Christ, the one that most fully describes the person and work of Messiah Jesus in all of the Old Testament. Our series is called The Suffering Servant. The first message when we began to unpack Isaiah 53 was called The Great Exchange in which we saw that the Messiah was both greatly abased and humiliated, but was also lifted up and greatly exalted. His death led to his ascension and his installation at the right hand of the Father. It was the great exchange. The second message, the servant's redemption, in Isaiah 52, verse 15, we learned that the death of Christ sprinkled many nations, and we learned that that meant that his death provided the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But then Isaiah is frustrated because he knows that in spite of these glorious truths, not everyone believes. And so that leads us to our text this morning, Isaiah 53, 1, where he says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The history of Israel was marked by prophet after prophet who came along and proclaimed the covenant, a covenant of grace, wherein God provides for the redemption of his people and calls his people to repentance. Year after year after year, prophet after prophet after prophet, and yet they don't believe it. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah cries. The message, the message is Jesus. The person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the eternally begotten Son of God who was sent by the Father born of a virgin, lived a life well into adulthood, a life without sin, with perfect obedience to the law of God. Jesus is the God-man. He is God. He's divine. He does things that no mere mortal could have done. 
They're called signs in the Gospel of John, miracles, and we've been studying that. He knows things that no mere mortal could know. He's divine, but he's also human. He is the Son of God who took upon himself our humanity so that in his perfection and in his humanity and in his divinity, he is the only being in the universe who qualified to save sinful humanity. We sinful human beings cannot save ourselves. We are sinners. We deserve eternal punishment for we have transgressed the law of the eternal God. Only the sinless, eternally begotten Son of God could save sinners. And that's why Peter declares, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now his work, his labor, it's Labor Day tomorrow. But we observe Labor Day every Sunday. Because we celebrate every Sunday the labor, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Part of his work in his, is his life. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And without his works of righteousness, there is no gospel. There is no redemption and no salvation. And then there is the suffering and death as his work. That part of the work which we proclaim, we preach, Today, when we take the Lord's Supper, his substitutionary sacrifice, his death in our place, his, you know the word, P, <laughs> propitiation, right? His wrath-removing sacrifice. And Paul declares it in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. There it is, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus, his work of righteousness, his work of propitiation, his sacrifice, that's the message that we proclaim as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup. And consider its value. The value of the message. There is no message of greater value. It is the message of eternal life. Life in the glorious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the angelic announcement to the shepherds. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. There you have it, Christmas in September. Amen. James Durham puts it this way, the discovery of Jesus Christ and the making him known is the greatest news, the gladdest tidings, and the most excellent report that ever can come or came to a people. There is no such thing can be told them, no such tidings can they hear. This is the report that the prophet speaks of by way of eminency, a report above and beyond all other reports. These are new, this is news worthy to be carried by angels. There is no greater message 
No greater news than Jesus, his person and his work. And that's what we all proclaim. That's what we preach every time we take this bread and drink the cup. But what if it's not believed? What if it's not believed? What if we do not trust this Jesus, the Messiah? For faith or belief is necessary for salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later on in that chapter of John, he who believes, Jesus says, in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what, believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In a passage in Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through, what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But what is faith? What is faith? There are all kinds of faith. Even the devils believe, and they tremble. So faith is more than just intellectual assent of the right facts about Jesus. The devil is orthodox in his understanding of Jesus. Faith, first of all, is coming to Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Coming to Christ assumes that by nature you were separated from him, but you turn from your sin and come to Jesus. Faith is coming to Jesus. Faith is receiving Christ. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Receiving implies a welcoming, a delight in the one welcomed, a joyous encounter with the Savior. Faith is apprehending Christ or taking hold of Christ. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may hold, take hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Faith is casting yourself on his mercy. The psalmist says it in Psalm 55, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Allow him to carry you, for you cannot carry yourself. Faith is submission to Christ. This verse from John chapter 3 again, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe or obey will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In a word, saving faith is trusting in Christ. And it is the duty of everyone to believe in Jesus. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It is the duty, the obligation of all human beings to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now what about those who have never heard of Christ? Well, Paul says in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world... 
His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We must proclaim Christ because all will be held accountable for their unbelief, for their rejection of the display of the nature and character of God in nature. And once Christ is proclaimed, all have the duty to believe. And yet so many don't believe. Who has believed our message? Some don't believe because they suppress the truth about God, even though the evidence for God is plain for all to see. According to Paul, many don't believe they simply don't honor God as God. They do not give God thanks for all his good benefits to them, none of which they deserve because they're all gifts and we are all sinners. Some don't believe because they speculate about things they know nothing about. They conjure up false philosophical systems which all end in meaninglessness. Many don't believe because they substitute all manner of idols in the place of God, not the least of which is the self. By nature, as one person put it, we are all self-made men who worship our Creator. They even substitute religious idols, sometimes in the place of Jesus, pretending that religious works substitute for genuine faith in Jesus. There are all manner of ways that people persist in unbelief, and its consequences are lethal, eternally lethal. John writes in his first epistle, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son does not have the life. And again, it reminds us of what Jesus said in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you really want to subject yourself to those consequences of unbelief. The message of Isaiah is the message we preach week in and week out. It is the message of Jesus Christ. It is the message of his life and his death and his resurrection. And so the question pressing us this morning is, have you believed the message? The message that you preach every time you eat this bread and drink the cup. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a euphemism for the power of God. In order for us to believe the power of God must be engaged. In the case of the gospel, the power of God, the arm of the Lord, is the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit in convicting us of sin. Jesus, for instance, said in John chapter 16, and he that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world 
concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The arm of the Lord is the Holy Spirit in regenerating us, in making us born again. Unless we are born of the Spirit, the Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, we cannot either see or enter the kingdom of God. And so that is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We see it as well in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The arm of the Lord, the power of God, is necessary. Why? Because we are by nature spiritually dead. Not just mostly dead. You remember that sermon? All dead. And the dead have no power. The dead have no ability to do anything. And that's why Isaiah puts faith and power together. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They are two sides of the same coin. Do you believe? Do you, dear friend, do you believe? genuinely believe, then the arm of the Lord, the power of God, has been at work in you. You couldn't believe otherwise. And the power of God has been at work, Isaiah speaks of it as a revealing. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When you are born again, the lights come on in your darkened mind. The glory of Jesus, formerly hid from our eyes by our sin, now shines in our darkened hearts. And great is the revelation that comes with it. It is a glorious revelation. It is a revealing, the greatest of revealings. And not only that, it is a gracious revelation. Ephesians 2 again, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Number two, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace, three, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is a gracious revealing when the arm of the Lord has prevailed in your hearts. And that's why this revealing is humbling, so that no one may boast. Paul in Romans 3 again, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Listen to how Paul feels about himself in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss, for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in viewing of the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. But rubbish. All the stuff that we might accumulate behind our names by way of, of uh, indicators of progress and success in this world, Paul says about himself, rubbish. so that I may gain Christ. Christ! What a great substitution for all the stuff that we accumulate in our lives. Christ. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Only to those who are truly humbled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. Is that what you preach this morning? Isaiah doesn't say, by the way, that it is his message. He says, who has believed our message? Our message. It's our message. All of us who take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Christ. We preach the message of Jesus. But who, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord? been revealed. Oh, Heavenly Father, may the arm of the Lord reveal that once again to us. And may all who hear about Jesus Christ find the power of God operating in their hearts so that we all with one accord might receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ representing his death in our place, and might discover once again the majesty of his atoning work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.